re-ask your questions about Christianity and love. Sure. All right. So welcome to Saturday morning, or actually this for you guys is Friday evening, Sangha. Um, uh, so I'm really glad to see you all. It's um, uh, April the what? The 15th here in the U.S. April the 15th, the Ides of April. All right. Uh, Corey, you had a couple of questions about Christianity, I think, which was something that we had just gotten started talking about anyway. So what is yeah. what? The things that I've noticed is that there it does seem to be. They, it's like they don't really have a lot of instructions for how to pray or how to worship. Like I've just heard lots of different things and um, everybody seems to have their own way. So there's not a, a lot of, um, so just kind of, it's always a little bit confusing to me when I was younger, how do I pray or what is prayer? And so like, um, I was thinking that what is prayer and what is worship, they have to have some kind of similar effect or maybe not necessarily similar, but the things with Anapanasati, um, that really are effective and that um, are so beneficial is that it brings us into the present moment and it helps with the uh, critical ego thoughts. And so prayer and worship, I was thinking that they also likely would have something to do with uh, helping with those problems, perhaps in a different way or with a different method, but I just never really heard how they work or what they really are. Okay. So hopefully, um, yeah. And then the other one was, what is love? And um, yeah, let's let's take with that one later. Let's go back to uh, the quality of what we would mean by worship um, and uh, experiencing the glory of God. That in fact the language is different, but the um, the issues for humanity are the same problems and um, situations that you find yourself in, folks found themselves in in 1500, in 1300, in 1100, all the way back, even to the time of Jesus, and then back to the time of the Buddha. Humanity. Hello. Hello, Kishan. Your microphone is really noisy. Really? I think your neighbor wow. has like a jackhammer going, dude. A big humming sound, like it's not plugged in with it. Sorry, I don't hear it anymore. I muted it. How about now? Now it's good. Perfect. So, what's going on? We're in the middle of something. We're talking about the human condition and religions. And that uh, religions, um, let us say natural religions, or how things get started, is because basically everybody can see that the human condition needs improvement. That in fact, many people even get the idea that life sucks and that some heavenly world is going to somehow be better. Because uh, this one isn't good enough. And so um, 
that's part of what's uh, getting started. Now, the next thing that we can talk about from there is the issue that the word meditation and the word prayer have been linked together within Christianity for many, many centuries. And that we could think that uh, there is also other language that we can use to give an indication like a prayerful attitude. That has a kind of a meaning to it. Uh, and yet most modern Christianity, uh, unlike um, Catholicism, Catholicism basically they, they decided to ritualize everything trying to organize it completely, get it completely ritualized. And then uh, at, at the time of the Reformation, uh, when the big protest started 100 years more because of the publication of the Bible, and then that group, the Protestants, got the idea that, oh, the Catholic Church, just because they had the first pope and the rock and Peter, and all of that kind of stuff does not make them the authority of religion or of Christianity of the day. That the book does, the Bible, that's the authority, so they think, or so they started to tell themselves. So much of them of, of the practices that were actually to one's advantage in uh, the time before the Reformation was basically thrown out by Protestantism and then kind of also lost by uh, the Catholics. And that is the whole quality of, of prayer and another word that they have is supplication and uh, that kind of thing. But if you look at it from another perspective, starting back from Buddhism, we can see that basically many of the things that Buddhism teaches, Christianity also wanted to teach. They just somehow got lost in the process and the rituals and the other things, okay? So uh, generosity, for instance, is one of the top items on Buddha's list that generosity is what helps Sangha together. It, it helps cement friendship, especially if you're generous with yourself in the sense of nurturing rather than being critical. Okay, so generosity uh, in Buddhism can then be seen in Christianity from the perspective of, I think it's even in, in uh, Paul where it says that uh, faith, Hope and charity are the foundation, but of these, charity is belief. That's the big one. That in fact, if you have faith and have hope, but you have no charity, then your faith and your hope is of no value. And so, um, from from the actual practices of uh, charity. We can go then back to the issue of the relationship between prayer and Christian meditation, because what prayer has, let us say, dwindled into is 
greed, a voice of greed. Now, what do I mean by that? Is, is that prayer is often asking God for something that we want. Oh, Aunt Susie's in the hospital. We should pray for Aunt Susie. If we pray hard enough for Aunt Susie, she'll get out of the hospital and then we can blame her getting out of hospital on God. I wonder who we uh, blame the bill on. <laughs> so um, there is also the catch 22 that goes with that. Would it, wouldn't, wouldn't meditation be a, a even more selfish version of that in most improper applications? Where you're sitting there wanting something. Well, that's the whole point is, is that the prayer is actually the, the voicing of it as the actual right thing to do to where within what we're talking about within Anapanasati is just the opposite of that is to see that we want something bad enough that we're going to pray to God to get it. And that that's the problem right there that we want something bad enough that we're going to pray to God to get it. But then the Christians, they run into it. In fact, I think this is kind of a joke, and that is the issue of God's plan. And and uh, George Garland uh, 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 got that one right when he says God's plan. God has a plan. And you want him to change his plan. Here he has going around with a plan that's lasted for 5, 10, 15,000 years, and you want him to change his plan just because you want something. And so that's the kind of way of looking at, at that. But there are deeper kinds of prayers rather than that surface one. That in fact, uh, <clears throat> an example of another kind of prayer would be sitting in the presence of God. Well, now we're getting much closer to Buddhism because sitting in the presence of God means sitting in the presence of this present moment. That we can begin to understand uh, another version without using the Christian version of God, but we can look at it from uh, the issue of the Dhamma or even the Dhammakai. Now, the Dhammakai actually is what we would call the full body of the Dhamma. That means that the Dhamma keeps spreading out and out, but the Dhamma actually is your location, your environment, or another way of saying it is the Dhamma is your world. And the Dhammakai is the sum total of all of the worlds. And so if we are sitting here in the present moment in the Dhamma, then that is actually a kind of Christian prayer. We just use different language for it. Just being in the present moment would be like just being in the presence of God. Except by adding this word God to it, they make it a little bit more magnificent than most people see the present moment. And in that regard, you can say, well, the Christians now have something going for them because they're trying to take the student out of the position of my environment and my week has been dirty and hard and tough and all of that. How dare I sit now in the pew in church 
and feel like I'm actually in the presence of God? Okay, the answer is, is that that's the feeling. The feeling of being in the presence of God. And that's exactly what we're practicing with Anapanasati. We just use a different kind of language. But if you're Christian, we can say, okay, we'll do that. We can say that we can talk ourselves into actually being in the presence of God because we're already in the presence of God. Here it is. <laughs> but getting in touch with that and experiencing it that to the fullest. So just sitting in Anapanasati is like being in the presence of God. We're right here in the senses. And if you want to add that additional um, language to it, to give you that little extra oomph to realize how magnificent it is to be alive in God's environment. Here we are. We're in paradise. You're in God's paradise. Adam and Eve were in God's paradise. Now, the story is, is that God threw them out of paradise. But the reality is, is they didn't leave paradise. They just decided that it wasn't paradise anymore. Because they didn't like this, that or the other thing. And so they were not in a prayerful state. They came out of their prayerful state into the state of greed and wanting things and now we have to back back up to that level of prayer of asking for things that you want that you don't have and so there's that second level of prayer and that second level of prayer then is the appreciation that you've got all you need and this is where real worship comes in and real gratitude for being alive to thank god really thank God or to thank the universe for just being alive, being able to breathe, being able to see what's going on, to actually to worship by appreciation, to be able to appreciate this present moment. But this is kind of Christian language. And because of that, and you know that if the Christians see um, Buddhism as the enemy, then us Buddhists have got to retaliate with that by seeing Christianity as the enemy. And therefore, we can't use Christian language to talk about Buddhism. But the reality is, is that we're all humans with the human condition. And that human condition is, is because we want things that we can't have, we can't appreciate that we're already still in paradise. We're just in paradise with a J1 rather than a galaxy. And so this paradise is a kind of hell. <laughs> By the way, a J1 is an old version of a Samsung. <laughs> So this is the whole way of, of understanding that there is a combination of uh, things or a relationship between the teachings of the Buddha and correct teachings of Christianity. Because Christianity already has all the good stuff in it. Jesus made sure that, that it uh, was well expanded. It just the people didn't understand what he was talking about. It almost requires a Buddhist to understand Christianity correctly. And another way of saying it is your best Christians are Buddhist. 
You want to know how I tie the two together? I um, recognize this as a possible way that they work really well together is that faith is not knowing something, but it's not quite belief or it faith is, um, I don't know, but when I realize that I don't know God, right? I don't have knowledge of God. Uh, God is unknown, sure but do. I could have faith. Yeah. And so what I took that to mean is that knowledge is kind of like the intellect and the ego and the mind thinking. And so that mind thinking keeps us wrapped up in the mind and it stops us from feeling and being present. And so what I took those two things to mean to working together, like how do they work together, is that you have faith so that you could kind of um, it's, it's a different kind of knowledge. It allows you to drop out of knowledge. And like if you have faith in God or faith in the present moment, you're not having knowledge in the present moment. You're just being present. And like this all kind of relates together to allow you to feel the present moment without knowledge and your mind getting wrapped up and kind of. But um, I don't know, I was just kind of thinking and those things stream together and they seem to kind of like work. But how they all work and in, obviously that's kind of like takes a lot of practice to know how. Or what faith feels like, and but I found that kind of doing prayer and doing meditation, they seem to work together. Um, but well, the thing that I, was, same thing when it's done correctly, we're just talking about a correct practice and putting different names or labels on it. That in fact the distinctions come when one goes off in the wrong direction, like asking for something that you don't have is what most people think of as prayer rather than being in a prayerful state of mind, which is actually a prayerful state of mind is an appreciative state of mind. And not only that, but it's appreciative in the sense that you feel safe. This whole point about feeling safe is a major, major issue. So we should discuss that within the sense of Christianity for a moment. You see, because Christianity has the issue of what they call faith. But faith in Western uh, Christianity tends to become belief. In the sense of having faith to them now means you have to have faith or belief in all of the Christian story, all the magical stories about heavens and hells and uh, fairies and goblins and uh devils and trinities and all of that kind of stuff which nobody sees but what we do have is paradise that you can see if you know how to look so um if we t tend to come out then of our magical uh stories we can understand better about what faith actually could be. And I introduced that with Achan Po, who tended to have several little statements that he would make to me, uh, uh, well-timed, get me, you know, he would grab me with just a couple of words. That was the way that he talked. And one of the words that he used uh, was tatata, which was basically be here now. And normally he would say that if he could get close enough to me without me knowing it, that he could literally sneak up so that he could whisper in my ear, hey man, you're not watching because I got close to you and you didn't know it. 
but the also he would say not sure and for a long time i didn't quite understand what he meant by the word not sure well it has qualities to it one of not sure is the quality of okay if you're not sure then let's keep doing an investigation let's keep looking let's take on the position that we are not sure but we can also take on the position that we are not sure that we're still safe. That that not sureness does not have to put us in a state of agitation or worry or fear because we are not sure. That in fact, what we need to know is just enough so that we can. Now, this is important. We need to know just enough so we can live in paradise, appreciate God's world, be in the here now, and enjoy the heck out of our paradise. Be grateful, be in great gratitude and supplication in the, in the sense of basking actually in the glory of God, because the glory of God is in the wind, it's in the air, it's in the oxygen you breathe, it's in the skin, it's in the blood vessels, it's in the water. Water's got some really strange properties to it. But that's all part of the paradise that we live in. And we, we stay alive that way. And so this whole um, point about allowing ourselves to feel really, really good let us say at the top of the way that Christians allow themselves to feel really good when they are in that experience of being in the presence of God. But they talk themselves into it. Why can't we talk ourselves into it, except that we're doing it with a little bit better understanding of what's going on. We don't actually need to have a God in order to be in God's paradise. So from that perspective of uh, God's paradise and practicing that way, this is what we can mean then by prayer and meditation. Now, meditation in the Christian sense um, had gone off in the direction of contemplation. A contemplation meditation is like con contemplating what's the nature of God in Christian language or what's the Trinity, or uh, what is uh, Mary Magdalene's, uh, or, you know, uh, Mother Mary, and the, and the grace or the uh, uh, compassion of Mother Mary. So these are the kind of uh, conceptualizations that they practice, that they call meditation, which are in, in fact, if you think about it, these are all things that are in the mind but outside of our reality, they're only concepts. So meditating upon a concept is what's normally practiced within Christianity to where what we're doing is we're meditating upon that which is real right here, right now, without having to figure out any of the concepts. So if we think of it from the perspective of the concepts and going back to that position of we don't know or not sure, we can go with just what we need to know to come into that state of 
supplication, that state of uh, relaxation, that state of uh, generosity and gratitude that is at the hallmark of both religions, except that sometimes Buddhists fail at that because they've gotten too technical in their um, practice, or Christians fail at it because of the language that they're using, uh, especially in the sense of magical language. But that does not mean that all Christians fail at it, nor do all Buddhists fail at it. But it's really good, and I'm glad you've asked this question, so that we can rise above both of them and look at, in fact, uh, beyond the language, what's really going on. And so uh, going back to that point about not sure, we're only looking for just enough information to bring ourselves out of our ordinary mental state into the state of prayer, into the state of uh, gratitude, in the state of being in the here now, and in communion with the God that we find all around us. That in fact, Jesus taught this also, the kingdom of God is within you, or it's at least around you or among you, that that was one of the things that the Christians would argue over at one time was what did he mean by by that word in uh, the Greek? And Jesus didn't even speak Greek. So if Jesus didn't speak Greek and why are they arguing over what the word Greek in Greek means? Does it mean within or among or around? Within our context, it doesn't even matter that distinction because the kingdom of God is right here, whether it's here or here or here or here or in. OK, here it is. This is it. It's all over the place. And so. Um, uh, this, by the way, is also the word that we uh, come to understand in English. There was a word that was used and that word is Abba. Well, if you look at the word Abba itself, you can see that the derivations of that become the abbot, like of the monastery, also words above and about come from this quality of Abba, around us, okay? So when Jesus was talking about Abba, he was talking about the environment that was around him, above him, and about him, and the Christians have translated that word into father. Well, we can, in fact, allow the word father to be used, but not in the normal sense that we have with a daddy with a penis and sex and, and uh, procreation and all of that kind of stuff, nor in the sense of a heavenly father like some dude that's way out there. But another way of looking at it is, is that the environment that you live in is very much like your parents. It sustains you. That we are nourished by our environment, this thing Abba that, are, that is around us. And so when Jesus says that I and Abba are one, that really means what he, he says is that he is in tune with his environment. He is in tune with what we have around us. 
So this is how we can use the word Abba. Now that's different than uh, the word Elah or uh, Allah and Elohim. That is a different word. And that's the word that Jesus was uh, using on the cross. My God, my God, how hast thou forsaken me? He used the word Elah or Allah for that one. Robert, you're smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, there's a great line by the philosopher uh, Slavoj Žižek about that line in the Bible. Uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is that in that line, Jesus is giving Christians permission to be an atheist. Because what kind <laughs> of God would forsake his own son on the cross so that makes Christianity actually a sophisticated kind of atheism um, because of that that one line. <laughs> that's that's very interesting. But we could also say that those one-liners like Jesus came out with was because of how he was feeling in that moment. And you can imagine how he did feel. All you have to do is imagine for yourself after a few hours of being beaten carrying heavy equipment, crown of thorns, strapped up or nailed up to the cross, and now you're laying there or standing there, and it's hard to breathe. Sure, but, you know, it's also a response to the question of evil in the world, right? You know, and when something evil is done to, to someone, they feel the environment is not sustaining them. They're not being nourished by their environment. They're not being taken care of by their environment. And then they would say, what kind of an environment is this? You know, what kind of a God is this? I love it when you're a half a step ahead of me. That's exactly, you're beating me to the punch. Exactly, that we feel like that we're not being supported by our environment. And we're feeling bad. But it still has to do with our own feelings. So the feeling is, is that if we feel separated from God or if God has forsaken us, that just means that we're in a state of bad feelings. And that's the knowledge that we need to have. The knowledge is, is that we talked ourselves into paradise and now we've talked ourselves back out of it because we don't like something. And that many of us then go back to the position of, well, I don't know enough. And the answer again is, we don't need to know very much. That we, in fact, can look at this word faith in the sense of that we do know that we can get ourselves into a good state because we've done it before. And in that regard, that's not faith. That is, in fact, um, confidence based upon prior experiences over and over again, repetitive experience. So let's go though to the faith that we have in the sense that faith then can be feeling secure even though we don't know all of the facts. But this is where um, ignorance in fact comes in. in. In Buddhism, you guys have probably heard about the 10 fetters and there's five lower fetters and five higher fetters. Well, guess which fetter is at the very top of the list? 
or the bottom of the list in the sense of the final one to go. Well, it's not really the final one to go. It just happens to be listed that way. But that is ignorance itself. In other words, we have to let go of the fact that we are never going to know everything. You'll never be able to see the God that's in your own imagination. That God, you can't find him. There's so many things that you'll never know. The question is, do you know enough? Do you know enough to be happy? Do you know enough to be safe? If you feel that you are insecure, unsafe, then what is it just a very little bit that we need to know in order to feel safe? Well, generally, right here, right now, in the present moment, uh, everyone feels safe. It's, it's kind of funny that uh, depending upon the way that people live, I would say almost everyone spends their life 99.9% .9 of the time not in danger. But occasionally we get in danger, and when we are, we don't know how to handle it. And because of that, we feel that we're in danger all the time, where in fact the reality is, is that we're not in danger. But we don't have to know everything to know that we're not in danger. I mean, there's a whole lot of what if isms out there. Well, what if this could go wrong? Or what if Putin does throw off nuclear weapons? Or what if the moon crashes into the Earth? Or what if COVID uh, Omicron Delta virus number 64 comes up? You know, there's all kinds of what ifs of things that can go wrong. And so Domino, have... quickly, uh, I wanted to say something about that. What you said, the environment, knowing your environment, mm -hmm. like you can only know so much of your environment, right? Like you, you could hear the sounds or see the sights or you, you have your own mind or your feelings. And so, I mean, you can't like know everything, right? Like that ignorance point, but you could also see and kind of appreciate beyond just kind of the content of what's inside of these senses, like the sounds that are there. You could kind of look at it from a, take a step back and see that they're present, that like the sound that you're hearing and you're seeing, and you have like a mind and you can kind of, uh, instead of getting, entangled into the content of what's going on you can just kind of observe it from like a more third person uh maybe like a conductor or even watching the conductor do his mm -hmm. thing right yes exactly so that in that in fact when we want to know something we tend to go too deeply into it to be able to see it correctly that there's all that in fact this is something that's quite interesting. And that is, is that we say, oh, the closer we get in, the better we can see it. Others are saying, oh, the further back that we get, we can see it. The answer to that is no, for both wants. That in fact, what in order to be able to see it, we have to do both the close and the back, and then the close again, and then the back, and then the close again, and then the back. And now there's nothing much to do except looking at it closely and then looking at it from the distance. And what we're looking at is, if you want to use the language, we're looking at the nature of God, up close and personal, and then from a distance. 
But the reality is, is that it's real that we're looking at rather than imagination. And so uh, the whole point about ignorance is, is that <clears throat> the, the number of things that are actually real are small. As vast as this actual universe is, there's only a few things in it. I mean, we've got it down to there's only like what, 92 or uh, something under 100 um, elements. Not much to it. And yet, uh, of the vastness. So when we understand that things are actually built upon simple principles, that means that we don't have to know all the complexities of the interrelationship between all of those things. All we need to know is enough to feel safe and secure and confident and happy and satisfied and content and grateful and worshipful that we appreciate. That's what worship really is all about. Now, we often think of worship in the sense of one up, one down, rather than the sense of that this is your environment and that you're fitting in to your environment, that you're part of it, that you're at one with your environment. This is what we're looking for, and we don't need to know all of the complexities. And yet I see a lot of Buddhists, wow, we call them scholars. They get PhDs from Harvard. They read all the books. They write all the books. And they know all the details of Buddhism. Many of them know the language of Pali very, very well. They just don't understand the teachings of the Buddha. Because the teachings of the Buddha is very, very simple. Not complicated. And yet, why, why do we become scholars? I think it's because that's what we trained students in school. Oh, we give them a gold star if he did the reading of the whole book or whatever like that. So we train our students to want to be scholars, to know everything. Where in fact, we don't need to know everything. We just need to know the right stuff. Just a little. Little dabble to you. Robert, you got your hand up. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, every so often in one of the ma major monotheistic religions or even Hinduism, you know, these my mystics come along and they talk about loving reality, you know, being in love with divinity, divine creation, this kind of thing. And these mm -hmm. traditions usually don't last very long, but they produce some really beautiful stuff, you know, like Rumi. You know, mm -hmm. the Sufi. Poet. I was just thinking of him. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, beautiful poetry about just loving all that is, you know, very wholesome stuff. And Sufism isn't that big of a deal today, you know, unfortunately. I, I was actually, I pulled up Rumi's poem, The Guest House. Maybe I can share that. That could be a fun thing to discuss if you'd okay, like. Okay. Yeah. If you've got it at hand, go ahead and read it. All right. The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. 
even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Mm -hmm. Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> Hello, darkness, my old friend. That's exactly correct. So that teaching of Rumi in his language is exactly the same teaching that we're talking about here of becoming friends with yourself. Let the, you know, hello, darkness, my old friend. A guide from beyond. A guide yes. from beyond, which means we don't know where it comes from. Beyond what? The Christians will jump on that and wrestle to it wrestle it to the ground, paint it red, hold it up, and says, see, we've got God. <laughs> and we don't know. We don't know what's beyond death. We don't know what what is out there. And it's okay for us to not know. But it's also quite dangerous for people to think that they know when, in fact, if you question them deeply, they would have to come around to recognizing that they don't know. But in our culture, especially, we're supposed to know. We're supposed if we don't know, we're supposed to guess. That's what the um, university uh, tests that have multiple choice. Have a multiple choice test is all because we're. Um, we're supposed to know all of the answers rather than having fun learning. And so uh, you often wind up with a whole lot of knowledge that really <clears throat> is at best just junk. It's unuseful, doesn't mean anything. And yet we still wind up not being able to use that information to come back and to feel good. I mean, uh, how many Christians hear the word? Go ahead, Robert. Oh, Kishan, can you please mute yourself? There's a lot of noise there. Thank you. I didn't hear what you said. Oh, uh, there was a lot of noise on Kishan's mic. I think he was playing with his mic, and it was very distracting. So. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So with with this. We can understand now that Christian language that is poo-pooed by um, the atheist, because the atheists are correct in poo-pooing the stories, the magical stories. But they throw out the baby with the bathwater in the sense that the atheists then um, are left with that if Christianity is not the answer, then there is no answer and we wind up being not capable of worship. We're not capable of uh, uh, having a, a worshipful attitude. We're not capable of gratitude to that which is beyond and all of this because the magic story was what they had trouble with. But with it, with Buddhism, we can come back and sort of clean out the story and recognize that what we're regularly talking about here within the basis of all religions is how to come out of our momentary day by day suffering and come back in 
to the glory of being alive or the glory of God. But God does not have to have a personality, nor does God have to have a, a sex or a gender or even a place. But wherever we are, there we are. So you don't have a particular place either. You move around from place to place. You're not always the same place. If you're not in the same place, then how can you be the same person? So in this regard, we can see that God is also dynamic. It's alive. And for that reason, it's hard to pin down or get the facts. And that's actually then more of our uh, ability to find the glory in God or to find the marvelous um, that that experience of uh, being delighted with the Dhamma. That's actually an important phrase. Delighted with the Dhamma is would be the Christian same version of uh, basking in the glory of God. Or being at one. OK, being delighted with the way things are. So. This, this is actually where Christianity could go to, but they get wrapped up with where do the rules come from? And in fact, uh, Ian and I just had a long conversation about this because he's uh, uh, doing graduate work in philosophy. And so he's got all these philosophy papers to write. And the philosophers are really on to that issue about morality. Where does morality come from? The real answer to that is, is that morality comes from the human mind, just like mathematics and language and everything else. That we invented that. And we do so in the sense that there are some behaviors that if those behaviors are done to us, we don't like it. Or if that thing happens to us, we don't like it. And then we have a vast group of people who all feel more or less the same way that they don't like it to be threatened to be killed. Nobody kind of likes that. And so we wind up having rules like thou shalt not kill. And yet that that rule thou shalt not kill doesn't stop killing. A lot of people think it is a really good idea to kill. I imagine there's people who are listening to this video either now or when it's on YouTube that would really like to see Vladimir Putin dead. I mean, deep down in your heart, wouldn't you like to just see him just go away? Right, that's the whole point is, is that we do have these feelings of not liking something and so we want to modify the rules so that, well, yeah, it's okay to kill sometimes. I mean, look at all the places that it's okay to kill sometimes. Armies, self-defense, police, prison guards. All of these professions, you see, give people permission to kill. And yet kill is probably the very biggest of our human rules. 
with the biggest punishment. Yes. I, I thought ahead. of I thought of a funny one. Uh, Walmart's Black Friday deals. What about Black Friday? You think that some people don't survive those, huh? <laughs> yeah, no, that happens. That's been in the news. People get killed in stampedes for uh, TV discounts. You know, they'll have a flat screen, you know, at a discount for like a thousand dollar discount and someone will die in a stampede. That's happened multiple times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or multiple people will die even. Yeah. So right. I guess odd reason for some people. <laughs> that's a very, very good point. Uh, that that we we make these rules and then we say, oh, but these are rules, not because I think it's a good idea. That's not good enough to make everybody follow my rules. I've got to make it a, a really big brand uh, rule coming from beyond or whatever. And so God makes the rules is, the, is their point. Um, the thing that's quite interesting about that is, is that if we could accept that I don't like this and I don't like that, then I can deal with it. But if we say instead that it is wrong, now we have, uh, let us say, justification to go and harm people for doing what we don't like. An issue of that would be like abortion. You know, the uh, the Republicans and the Christians are doing what they can to stop uh, stop abortion. But the question that was asked on MSNBC is what happens when all of the Republican women. Who are for the Republicans uh, preventing abortion, what happens when their daughters get pregnant and they want an abortion? What are they going to do? Are they going to go get a secret uh, illegal abortion and still keep the laws the way that they uh, are becoming? The answer to that is yes, that's probably how they will do it. That getting these laws repealed will be very, very difficult simply because of the hypocrisy, because this is God's law somehow, except God never made any laws. There's nothing in the Bible at all about um, abortion. But in fact, yes, there is in Deuteronomy, and I think in some place in Leviticus it's mentioned, but in Deuteronomy there's actually a story about the concoction itself and the ritual that's done in order to cause an abortion. Isn't that interesting? There's actually an abortion in the Bible, and that abortion is, um, is performed by the priest. And the reason for it is, is that because in those days, as well as now, guys get the idea that my wife is pregnant and it's not my kid. And so this is where they go. They say, okay, well, that's not my kid. uh, Therefore, um, it should be aborted. And so they take grain. I think that there's actually like a bushel of grain that they have to take to the priest as a gift. And the priest will then sweep the floor and burned one of his uh, old books, come up with some ash, mix that together, and have the pregnant woman drink it while he's doing all of his prayers and chants and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, Levites really can get into chanting, um, cantors and whatnot. So 
as they're as they're doing that, if the woman was in fact pregnant from someone else's baby, then magically she's going to have an abortion. And if she doesn't have an abortion, that means that she was okay and that her baby is in fact the son of the jealous husband. If you think about it, that's actually quite it's quite psychological. You would not want to give an actual potion that actually does cause abortion. You wouldn't want to do that. What you would want to do is convince the guy that because the abortion didn't happen, that it's his kid. So that he lays off, he gets out of it. So, um, in that regard, I don't understand even why the Christians are so directly against abortion. Um, other than it sounds like, you know, right to life. Oh, we shouldn't be going around killing babies, right? Well, we're not. Abortions are not killing babies. It's killing, and it's not even killing fetus. It's actually removing uh, something from the woman that she doesn't want in her body. Does that mean that the new laws are saying, oh, well, women cannot have um, breast cancer removed. They can't have a brain tumor removed because that brain tumor itself is probably a living soul, a living being. <laughs> so we've kind of gotten off of the topic about it in the sense of uh, making rules for other people rather than recognizing that the rules that should be made should be made very, very simply and very directly, like down to just one rule, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. If this is causing you suffering, then stop doing it. That should be our only rule. And that rule is very difficult then to apply to other people to go make them follow my rules. So this is what a lot of Christianity is wound up being is just the hypocritical point of I'm going to make you follow the rules that I and my family don't even bother to follow ourselves. But that's an issue of control. But we've got better things to do with the religion than controlling other people. And yet that's what religion has been doing for centuries is used as a control mechanism. An example of that is the divine right of the kings. In other words, king can be the king so long as he's got, number one, the power to remain king, and number two, the authority from the church that God get, said that it was okay for him to be king, or God made the rules, right? So God doesn't make rules. What God does is provide an environment for us to be happy. Robert. So one thing I've noticed is that um, wherever power and money is, is where sociopaths tend to flock. Um, you know, so in the U.S., you have uh, Washington, D.C., Silicon Valley and Wall Street, um, you know, full of sociopathic behavior. Um, and I imagine the same happened with religion. You know, there may have been a really nice core there. Like I think Silicon Valley, you know, for example, had a pretty noble core to it in some respects. You know, people just inventing things out of sheer curiosity and kind of the pleasure of creating new technology. Right. You know, and then it got corrupted. 
you know, and perhaps, you know, religion, you know, underwent, you know, a similar trajectory, you know, and it seems that once something reaches a certain point, it, it just easily gets, you know, the sociopaths flock in and then it gets corrupted, you know, and the original sweetness is gone, you know, and you're left with the, uh, the stew of shit. <laughs> well, let us, instead of using terms like sociopath, which actually are not inaccurate at all, it would perhaps be a better way of saying that it is when greed comes in. Because some people have really done a lot of damage with their greed without being technically a sociopath. But you are right. Those who uh, do have greedy tendencies. The greedier they are, the more likely they will be listed as a sociopath. And what does that mean is, is that a sociopath is actually dissatisfied with everything and he'll use anybody and anything to make things happy and satisfactory for himself, no matter what else other people have. And so it winds up being a very personally selfish position. And while have we had a long history of them, in fact, the one that is my favorite is um, um, Alexander VI. The Pope of Rome from 1460 until about uh, 1503 or something like that. He was, in fact, the Pope that um, Martin Luther rebelled from. That was the Pope that had the indulgences. That was the Pope that had several illegitimate children. His last name, by the way, the real name was Borgia, and he had a daughter named Lucretia Borgia. Have you ever heard of her name, Lucretia Borgia? She was the one who had the ring that opened up that had poison in it so that she could surreptitiously, while somebody was drinking a good glass of wine, poison it just by, uh, uh, let us say, sexually touching them and giving them uh, attention and whatnot while she was poisoning them. And uh, she poisoned three popes in a row until the next time that they elected a pope. Nobody wanted to run for pope because they would wind up dead very quickly. The only <laughs> one that would run was her daddy. That's how he got to be pope. Okay, so that's a very, very clear example of um, people going to extraordinary lengths to gain power. Because why do people want so much power? Because if you have power, then you can be less afraid. But if you are not afraid at all, then you don't need any power. So you're right with that one, um, Robert, that sociopaths and those seeking greed wind up wanting to be in control and then they and their minions will then make rules for other people that that's in fact the way that you learned uh, that you can take control over other people is by giving them rules to follow and so if you give people rules to follow then you can't control them So this is um, going back then to the issue of Christianity is, is that Christianity winds up a religion that winds up trying to control a lot of people 
as opposed to a religion that has individual freedom for each individual person. That's the danger with organized religion is, is that some, the organizers organize it so that they can control things. So the other Robert has his hand up. Robert, did you have a question? No? Okay. All right. Corey, I don't see you there, but I think that this would be a good time for us to move from uh, your first question, because I think that we covered that one fairly well into your second question. Uh, would you mind if I did one small follow up to the sociopathy? Okay, sure. So, uh, so do you think that sociopathy could be cured by the Dhamma or do you think it's just such an ingrained brain malfunction that there's no way the Dhamma could cure it? And the same extends to psychopathy. Um, actually, the psychologists have have um, uh, the answer to that one. Uh, the psychologists will often say that sociopaths and psychopaths and narcissists are their most difficult clients to deal with. And almost always those clients become clients because of a court order or some sort of outside pressure. Just like the people who are uh, sent to AA by the court wind up being not good AA people. So that's the problem with the sociopath is, is that no, they're more than likely not going to go looking for the Dhamma because they've already got the position that their problems are to be blamed on someone else. I mean, can you imagine Donald Trump actually taking responsibility for any of the th stuff that's happened? Oh, no, he's going to find someone else to blame for everything. And that's the issue is, is that in order to have some Dhamma come into our lives, we've got to make the room for it by recognizing that we can and sometimes need to change. And sociopaths, they don't need to change, they need to take control. Any changing done is going to be changed by somebody else. We've got to get those folks in line so that they can do what I tell them to do. And they and those are the kind of people who then just naturally gravitate to the top. You've probably heard somewhere that cream rises to the top. Right? Guess what? So do turds. <laughs> And in our society, it's the turds who rise to the top. That's your politicians, that's your CEOs. And another way of looking at it is, is that anybody who gets that much power is bound to misuse it in a selfish way. So the outcome could be, and that happened a lot with Silicon Valley, that a lot of the guys in Silicon Valley were not intending to get rich. They were intending to get a product or get something going that they liked. And after they got it going, other people wanted it, and then they became rich. And after they become rich, now their the greed will come up. So that um, you've heard that um, that power corrupts. And absolute power absolutely corrupts. 
in that regard, let's then recognize that if power corrupts, I don't need any power. I'm quite happy being powerless. If I can be both powerless and safe, the problem is, is that if I have no power, that means that I'm going to be unsafe. But if I can be safe and bask in the glory of God, I don't need any power. Don't need to, uh, to recruit or to force other people to do anything because I'm already satisfied and happy. So that's what happens with religions. Religions get taken over by the wrong people every time. I've seen that within Buddhism, that in fact, um, Dan Ingram and I on a, a call with uh, 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 Steve uh, James on the Guru Viking, Dan mentioned that that's what happened with the Mahasi method, that someone got in there with the power to take over and then his personality became more of the method than what his teachings, uh, what his teachers taught him. And so that happens in, in many, many different places. This is when anything turns hardcore is because the guys in who eventually, no matter how beautiful or softcore the whole show is, when someone who has got hardcore takes over, the whole show becomes hardcore. That happened to the, the Catholic one who Church. created the religion should the one who created the religion become hardcore in order to <clears throat> like start it and that would that stop the issue or is it possible for a religion to not become corrupted eventually or is that like the destiny of all religions well let's take the first one as an example first the first example would be muhammad when he was in mecca he had all the right stuff for a beautiful religion which is now the second part of the Quran because they re reversed it. So that the, the first the first part of the Quran is about the time that he was in Medina. And the second part of the Quran was actually his early days when he was in Mecca. And all of the beautiful stuff that is in Islam came from that. But he uh, uh, got into a lot of trouble, in fact, um, with his own family, and so he uh, secretly started getting all of his followers, about 200, to sneak out of town. And he was one of the last ones to sneak out of town, and they almost got him. I think they missed him by minutes. And he got out of town, and he went to Medina, and there, with the followers that he had, because Mecca was probably a fairly big place, and Medina was much smaller with him having 200 followers there. It was fairly easy for him to take over, especially since they already had their own wars and strife and whatnot like that. So he just came in and became a warlord. So the second half of the Quran is the destruction of the beautiful religion that Muhammad started. So that by the time he died, he was a murderer. He either ordered or had uh, taken participation in the, the execution of about 600 Jews, which were the, the Jewish uh, group in Medina. And the reason that he killed them all was because they were surreptitiously behind his back dealing with Mecca. 
and he didn't like that, and he felt felt betrayed. So there's that issue of the power. So that's an example of a religion going bad in the lifetime of the guy who started it. And then you have the issue of, of Jesus that his religion got went bad um, right after he died. How did it go bad? With Paul. And then later with Constantine. Where Buddhism stayed fairly pure up until uh, for several hundred years or let us say 150 years up until the time of Asok. And that's when it started to go bad. But by the time of the fifth century, it really did get kind of opposite of what the original teachings of the Buddha were. So the Buddhism has also become polluted. But unlike Christianity and unlike Islam, there is a great core of the actual teachings of the Buddha left. To where that core within Christianity is very tiny, very remote. Less than, let us say, just as an example, less than one-tenth of one percent of any Christians ever get anything out of Christianity. Everybody else just gets more socialization. Very few Christians can actually go into a worship service and go into a state of worship. But that's what we're, we practice, is going into that state of Everything is okay. Everything is beautiful. Everything is marvelous. Wow, God did a good job on that breath. <laughs> and start getting that attitude of worship. This is what uh, we can do because we have a slightly different language that's not so magical. So, Shall we finish with this one, or does anybody have any last remarks? Both Robert had their hands up again. No? Okay. I'm hoping we can talk about the love thing. I don't think we got to the love part. No, we haven't. I've been saving that tidbit to last. Okay. And I can handle that very easily by quoting Tina Turner, which I've already done. And that is, you ask about love, the answer to that is, what's love got to do with it? Now, what do we mean by love? Because in fact, I don't know of a word in English language that has more variety of definitions than the word love. One of my favorites is the catty expression of uh, two debutantes all dressed up to the nines at a party to where another debutante on the other side of the room is also dressed up to the nines and one of these said to the other don't you just love her dress said in a really catty kind of way all right so when we're talking about love in that regard what we're meaning is is that I love it means that I like it or it's high quality, or uh, in this regard, isn't she showing off with that dress? Um, things like this, it has many, many definitions to it. But basically we can talk about it that, that we can put the word love in the category of another word and then we can understand it better and that is need. If I like something, that's okay. But if I need it, that's more. And if I love it, that's even worse. 
So you could think of that love, in fact, unless we're very careful with it, is nothing much more than clinging itself. If there's four modes of clinging and love can be considered a form of clinging. And what are the four modes of clinging? Well, one of the modes of clinging is we cling to ourself. The sociopath loves himself. Then we have procreation. So we love that girl. And that's nothing but just chemicals and hormones. But one of the ways that I like to think about that, the romantic love that we feel or the beautiful girl that we feel is simply because we were programmed that way through our genes. That if we weren't programmed that way through our genes, and I mean, think about it like this as an intellectual exercise. Having sex or procreation is repulsive. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a terrible act. Nobody likes to see two dogs fucking. It's an, it's an ugly, ridiculous sight. How can we possibly want to do such an ugly, ridiculous thing as having sex unless we think somehow or we feel somehow that it is marvelous, that it is God's greatest gift to humanity? sex. We actually put the, the feelings of orgasm and the feelings of sex at the top of the list of how good can you feel? That in fact, even uh, meditation is um, compared somehow that it's better than sex. I've even heard Ferraris and other automobiles, BMWs, and I've even seen R69S BMW motorcycles are better than sex. <laughs> you can't get sex going 120 miles an hour like you can that BMW. <laughs> and so in a way, what we're saying then is, is that sex itself is overrated in our culture because it has that um, it has that desire or that spark or that uh, underlying quality that's built into our genes, but that there is no reason why that should be exploited and and flower full bloom uh, full blown into lust that I had a conversation with Achan Po about this. And one of the things I remember him saying was, is that he became a monk as a child and he had no opportunities, none, no opportunities to look up girls' dresses, no opportunities to see videos, no opportunities for porn, no opportunities to, um, uh, to chat a girl up, nothing. He never had any opportunities for that and he was just fine with that. But he was also recommending or recognizing that here I am, a 35-year-old Western man who has been there and done that. <laughs> and because of that, there's a different mentality that we think now that we've been there, done that, or that we've been raised in this culture of, where sexuality is such a big deal that we feel deprived when we don't get any of it. That we feel bad, oh, I can't get no satisfaction. 
or I can't get laid. Sitting by the phone, waiting for it to ring. You know, all of those are the kind of things that go on. Um, and we can also say um, there's words that we use like lovesick. Because we want something so bad that we can't get it. Now, I never got lovesick over a motorcycle because those were normally attainable, but I have been lovesick over girls. Especially when I was in high school, when I didn't know what I was doing. After I got some skills, then I never got lovesick again. I just got all that I wanted. <laughs> I learned how to do it. But normally the young kids, then we start off with this society trying to teach us that love is everything. Love makes the world go round. All of that kind of stuff. And basically what it is is just selling love. It's a, it's a promotion. It's part of our culture. And so um, love itself then at that rate is highly overrated. That we can do much better off with, uh, without needing something that we don't have to be learned to be satisfied with what we do have. That in fact, going back to Christianity, within within Christianity, the whole idea is to change it from ro what we call romantic love into married love. And often, what married love means is is that the people they know each other and they know what sex is all about, and then they don't bother to do it much anymore. Because I mean. What's the point? That high sexual activity is something that young people do because it's the young people who were too stupid to recognize that they've been sold a bill of goods by the society. I mean, look at the cosmopolitan magazines and the sexy little outfits the girls wear on television. So all the girls in town have to wear the sexy little outfit because they saw it on TV. All right? And yet you can go in the opposite direction, and that is the, the really opposite direction is a burqa, a veil. Now you can't see anything. And in that regard, the, uh, uh, the uh, typical Muslim man is overwhelmed with his lust. But in fact, possibly the best way for us to do it is to go back to natural, go back to the way things used to be, and this all went around naked so that all the pussy you ever want to see is right there. I mean, <laughs> you just can't touch it unless you have permission. <laughs> but but why do we make pornography such a terrible thing? Is because it's not the porn, it's not the viewing, it's the lust that's associated with the porn rather than making it absolutely ordinary. Because it really is ordinary. And not only is it ordinary, but it's kind of ordinary and low class. There's nothing much to that. And so we normally associate the word love with romantic love. But then we take that word and we put it all over the place, like the love of a car, love of a country, love of a religion, love of, and then basically the thing that we could fall in love with and need to fall in love with is reality. That which we swim in 
the fish can fall in love with the water that it swims in. That's the way of looking at it, that we can, in fact, channel those grand feelings of, of wonder and joy and being uh, in a state of love uh, so that then that kind of love does make the world go round. Rather than the business world, love makes the business world go round because if people didn't love that product, they wouldn't buy it. And so uh, we can change that greed from the greed of or the want of things that we don't have and we have to go work to get it into the love of that which we do have. And that's the glory of God. Here it is. We've got that. It's beautiful. It's right here in front of us. It's all over the place. I've got God all over my body. Todd, you got your hand up. Um, I just want to say two things related to that. That Well, the, the first one was something that a study that I thought was really interesting where they had taken people... Uh, they, they took some people who were like newly in love, you know, freshly fireworks and all that. And then people who had been like married for, you know, decades and they scanned their brains while they showed them a bunch of images. And in those images were nested um, a picture of, you know, their partner. And what they found was that the people who were like freshly in love, when they saw a picture of their partner, different parts of their brain lit up from the person from the people who had been in relationships for decades and basically the people who had been in relationships for decades the parts of their brains lit up were the ones that would light up like when you see an old familiar chair that you really like and it's it's a very it completely changed the the quality of that experience um you know just just in terms of the brain uh parts involved with it which i thought was kind of interesting and then the other thing was i was just going to say uh, and I, I'm assuming maybe you're getting there too, but the um, the version, like the the definition of love that I always found to be the most, I don't know, useful or or beneficial to me. It was the the, the I, I'm not sure where within Buddhism it originated, but it's you would often hear it, uh, you know, in in various contexts. But it's the love is the the wish for the other to be without suffering and so oh that's a very noble definition of the word love that sounds very buddhist i mean in the sense that some yeah. buddhist made that up <laughs> yeah yeah it's definitely from buddhism i'm i'm not sure whether it's you know exactly where it, it was uh, originated though but i've always liked that ah but guess what um here here's something that may point that to be contradictory if the guy loves the girl and he really loves her and he really wants her he wants to get her in bed whether she wants that or not okay but now you're talking from the buddhist perspective is, is that if he loves her then he's not going to try to get her into bed unless that's what she wants exactly yeah 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 and i like the idea that you know you can you can love a dog as much as a parent or 
a spouse or, you know, like I said, a tree or whatever. I mean, it's the same, like you, you don't want the things, the people to suffer. And that's like, I think in that way though, it's kind of hard almost to define it differently from like compassion or like to, to draw a distinction between it because they're kind of the same things I would think. It's interesting there about the dog. Many, many times people will love a dog more than they love uh, any human being. There's examples of that of people leaving a huge amount of money to a dog or a cat. Or um, um, that, let us say that the woman had to evacuate because of Putin or something like that. And that she can't stand to be without her dog. And so the dog has to come to no matter how much difficulty that dog is going to be for other people that woman wants that dog no matter what okay so we do have that kind of attachment to other things but that you can see here that's merely just clinging that someday or another i mean the, the average lifespan of a dog at best is 20 years so if you have a dog as a child before you're a full adult, that dog's going to be dead. There's nothing that we can do about it. That's just lifespans of dogs. Most dogs don't even live 20 years. That's a real outside uh, position. Most of them die at, at uh, 10, 12, 13, 14 years. That's the average lifespan of a dog. And many people go through a great deal of grief when they lose that dog. But they kind of knew that as a puppy. That in fact, I've got um, uh, Poom Pooey here now is nine years old and she's showing her age. And I remember when she was a puppy back in 2013, she was, I mean, she, she was just a puppy. And I still see that puppy in her, but she's now uh, over the hill. She's old and fat. You can see it in her, uh, the wrinkles of her skin and other things like this. And so, I care for her the same way that I cared for her when she's a puppy, but she's going to die. We can handle that. And so this is part of the wisdom of recognizing that it doesn't matter how much you love something, you're going to lose it. And the Buddha talks about it in the sense of grief comes from those who are dear. So anyone that you love, anyone that you really, really love, is going to cause you a great deal of suffering when you lose them. When the wife dies. Hello, Daniel. How's it going? Yeah, you came in a little bit late, but that's all yes. right. We're, we're just about to finish up here. We were talking first off. We were uh, to uh, to wrap up uh, with the review. We talked about Christianity. And the better parts of Christianity, especially correct prayer and meditation, is actually communing with our world, communing with God, and God is all around us. So being here in the present moment is communion with God. That's what we practice. So Christianity and Buddhism can be seen as the same thing when you understand the language differences. Yeah, I think we've talked about that before, kind of. Mm -hmm. And so also we're talking about now the word love and all of the ramifications that it has. But what love winds up almost always being is not 
the agape love that um, is referred to in the Bible, but rather carnal love or romantic love or even married love where you've just gotten used to something for so long that it's just part of the furniture. But there is another kind of love, and that is that when we're talking about agape love, we can also refer to that as the Buddha's definition of the word friendship. That when we really are friends with someone, then we really do want their best interest. And so if we are now going to become friends with ourselves, that means that we can love ourselves. But that's not the same thing as the narcissistic love, but rather it's the acceptance of everything's okay, everything is fine. And so we can, in fact, use the word love in a proper way so that we can be in love with our environment. We can be in love with the world. We can be in love with reality. We can be great, grateful and gracious and uh, practice generosity. But that generosity comes out of gratitude to, to give it back. Wow, I've gotten so much here. I'm overflowing. Let me return some of this. And so this would be the real value of the word love is to put it at the highest class when now, now you could call it noble. Noble friendship, noble love. I mean, those, those words are almost contradictory because noble and love don't fit together. Uh, unless we kind of <laughs> really take a hammer to that word love. <laughs> So that would be the right way of looking at it is, is that we do have the, the benefit and well-being for ourselves and for others as part of the acceptance of the reality that we live in. And that reality that we live in can be called God or the Dhamma. Just that's what it is. Does that help answer your question? Um, um, because you got your hand up. Yeah, <clears throat> I wrote down some notes that I think would help to um, some thoughts that I felt were good to share. Um, because the thing that I was, I do realize that that is a mistake that a lot of people make. Um, they mistake the carnal love or they mistake pleasure for love. And um, so I was wondering, because they, there's a lot of talk in scripture or you, I often have heard um, God's love for humans or God's love for the universe or God so loved the world. So, like, I was trying to think about what is, uh, how would love fit into all these different situations? Um, and how would it also make sense for the incorrect things, right? How, how could people do love right and wrong? And you, you kind of tapped on it with the agape and the carnal love. But here are some of the things that I came to understand as we were talking about it. So these are some of the um, components and things that I think make up agape love. Um, and I just kind of freestyled it. So it's, I don't really know what agape love is. I haven't really read a lot up into it. But um, I, do, I do think I'm qualified to speak on it for a second, or at least say my thoughts. So one of the first, there's about um, seven. So I'll try and go through each one of them pretty quickly. But one, the, one of them is uh, first on the list is the surrender of the ego and the selfishness. So when we think about love between God and human, 
if we think about love between God and a person, or between a man and a wife, or between friends, what we're trying to say, or what that we think would be a great thing, is we want to see them as equals. So part of love is this ability to be, be on the same level, right? The ego is knocked down from the top position that I'm the most important, right? Ego kind of has this problem of being either the foundation or the top. And so that's a benefit, I would say, or a quality of agape, of real love or noble love, is that it is at least able to drop the ego from the top of the pyramid to at least equal with one other person, right? Um, when you so, use the word ego, what I would use instead is the word selfishness. That yeah, like no ego or become, like... Um, we, we no longer become selfish. Yeah. And like in, in, a, in another way to say it is that the, um, some of the symptoms or the way that this like um, issue might manifest is that essentially your mind automatically and subconsciously prioritizes yourself as the top. So when all of your thoughts and all of your hopes and dreams, everything that comes out of you, your interactions in every moment, if you have the self at the top or if you think yourself is better than others or different, it's kind of like it causes issues. You feel more separate. You feel alone. Um, so being able to have yourself not be the, the most important thing in the world, that is, yeah, like that's the reducing of the ego, right? So where we can not have ourselves be, and a good ex another example of that would be uh, a loving parent who has a child. Suddenly they don't think of themselves as the most important. They're willing to sacrifice themselves. They're self-important. And they're willing to do things like work a job that they don't really like, but they need that money to provide uh, support and safety for their family. So this is a quality There's of, a song. Uh, of noble. There's, the song is, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. <laughs> yeah. Um, another one is like, love is a bond with God. And if we're talking about the present moment, I like to think of one of the qualities of God or something that I have experienced with this feeling of God or God is omnipresent. And if we are in the present moment, we are having a bond with God. And that's kind of a good way to try and understand this love of God and the love of man, right? Man meets God in the present moment. God is already omnipresent. So there's a little bit in there too, right? So by the way, I would say that if you perfect love, you're going to master all these things. You're going to do them all at once. And you're going to know how these things fit together to have this experience of love. Um, and so with that, the bond of bond with God, right, uh, is sharing of now. So if we take think of God, a bond with God is a bond with the present moment across all the different realms, even the mental. Sharing of the now with another person, we might think of like being with them physically or kind of present or the sharing of the present moment. And then another quality is complete acceptance, forgiveness, and gratitude. And so acceptance is another way of getting into the present moment. We, um, we just accept. It's not about knowing. It's not about anything else. You're just complete acceptance. And this is another way to get into the present moment. Gra uh, forgiveness. Forgiveness is letting go of the past. Yet again, another way to get into the present. Gratitude is a positive way to add a kind of uh, happiness and a love. And it's, it's all those three things together combined for a very special effect. Another one is, I guess this is just gratitude said differently, but we're going to be happy for them, happy to be with them. 
Another one is love is showing up for it or being open. I guess that's just acceptance. I just kind of phrase it differently. Um, love is having their best interest in mind, which I guess kind of the thing, I guess the tricky thing about having their best interest in mind is that you need to have your own self-love too. And so that's again, putting, being on equal footing with other people, uh, specifically with whoever you're in love with. And if we think about the love of Jesus, it's about that effect across all people across all time, right? So the ultimate love would be to have these effects with all people, um, to expand your love, to in include these elements with everybody. And then another one was um, love is giving. And love is um, it's not holding back, which I guess, again, relates to selfishness. So I guess I kind of re reiterated some of those things. But th those are some of the things that came up to my mind that I thought matched all of the, like when, when some of those are missing, someone isn't really having the right kind of love. Maybe there's a little bit of carnal pleasure in there. Uh, maybe they are mistaking love for pleasure or so there is ways to kind of like do love the right way, have perfect love or um, and then there's also ways to kind of um, have lust, contaminate those things. And so all of those things would match to the love of God. So that doesn't even have to be it's a just like the relationship with the present moment and anything and everything that you find in it. And you can have that kind of love with animals. I think the most interesting thing is that like if someone is um they've been wounded by people they don't like people and you hear that a lot people say i love my dog more than i love people they are unable to forgive they are contaminated by this past trauma and they can't overcome it and they feel love with their animals the most because no animal has ever really hurt them the way humans have so that's what i really liked about that little exercise is all those qualities you're, you're not you're not the first one to have that little exercise and in fact it sounds to me like that you had forgotten that you had read that out of a paragraph of the bible there is a, a place where all of that stuff is in fact listed i'm it's in the epistle someplace i'm not sure where but it starts off with you know love is kind and love is forgiving and love is it's the whole list of stuff that you put there is is coming right out of the Bible. I never read the Bible. I just freestyled <laughs> it. But I do agree that like yeah, it's um if it is love, it'll be the same for everyone. And um, I yeah, so I'm just it was a big interest to me. I've tried to been looking into it, and I just feel like I didn't really know what love was or have my heart open to it. And so I put a lot of um, effort and concentration and just trying well, that's to kind because of um, love is, yeah. as we've talked before, love is not one thing. Love is all over the place. We use the word for all kinds of things. Uh -huh. And so it's actually because it's become a throwaway word. It's better to use other words. An ex other example, in fact, I'd already started with that, is the word that you're using called ego. Ego is a throwaway word that, in fact, most of the way that it's used is exactly opposite of the way that Freud used the word, and he was the one who invented and made it popular. The superego, the ego, and the id. And in fact, when we talk about um, ego and egotistical in our language, what we actually are mean, meaning is id and idtistical. That's that very, very basic, selfish, reptilian brain that's designed to keep us alive. 
and it's based upon fear. And so that's the uh, that would be the word. So when you use the word ego, I want to bring it up to well know the ego is in fact possibly the best part about you. That would be your ability to observe, your ability to see straight, your ability to put things together in sequence or connect the dots. But the problem is is the id in the sense of the selfish child, the brat, the um, barbarian within. <clears throat> and so that's the way that the word ego has become and the way that you were using it. And so that's why I changed the word from ego into the word selfishness. Because selfishness then is, um, let us say, loving uh, or looking for love in all the wrong places is what selfishness does because it's looking for love in selfish places. So we look for love in sex. We look for love in um, relationships that wind up being an issue of ownership and control over if I can get that girl to do what I want her to do, then I own her, she's mine. I mean, every one of you have had that kind of mentality of if I could only get her into bed, then she's mine. I've got her. I own her. Guess what? She goes to bed every night and she doesn't own herself. How can you own her when she doesn't own her? <laughs> uh -huh. And and so what we can do now is rearrange our language around the word love so that we can begin to avoid that word because it means so many different things to so many different people that it's not a useful word to use. Just like whenever I use the word meditation, I almost always define it because otherwise people will think that I'm talking about something that they know all about. And I would much rather use the word Anapanasati because that's a word that people then need to have a new correct definition for in order to understand it. When we use the word meditation, that's just all over the place. The word love is just all over the place. And for that reason, I wouldn't use it. However, the word friendship may not have quite the power of the word love, but it is a much, much cleaner example of what we're talking about doing. And so I would recommend like Tina Turner and just, you know, what's love got to do with anything? That's just a throwaway word. Don't you love that dress? Don't you love the weather we're having? We can use words like I like it or it's good or whatever like that without using this word love. It's unless, funny in Spanish. Unless we're trying many. to give a message, okay? And uh, when I'm saying giving a message, the Thai language is tilak. Uh, tilak is the word for, for love. So if I say tilak or tilak kun, that means I love you. But it doesn't have in Thai language the connotation of all of this other stuff. That tilak in Thai actually does have that quality of, of friendship. So I tell Tam often. Tila, I really appreciate her. 
do I actually love her? I'm not sure. We'd have to go through the list of definitions of the word love to figure out do I love her or not. But I do very much appreciate her. She makes my life easy. But do I tear her clothes off? Nope. <laughs> So um, let's see who's got their hand up. Robert, you've got your hand up. Um, yeah, so I have a question for Corey. Um, do you think we, could we say um, the present moment is God? Um, it's like um, Samarada was saying is that it's such a um, throwaway. I wouldn't say throwaway, right? Because, because, but it basically, I would say it's like a dangerous word. And uh, it's dangerous because it is a throwaway word. And so there's some crossover there. But the other thing I would say is that uh, God is the heavy word. It's very hard to lift. It takes a lot of kind of a certain kind of spiritual strength. So I know I tried it's only got not. three letters and it's got the weight of a hundred <laughs> letter word. <laughs> yeah. So I would say that unless you really know how the whole system kind of works, um, try to, to not use the whole God word, but then in the end, they do mean the same thing, right? And it's kind of, um, but it's th like if you, um, if you define the present moment and you say God is the present moment, it creates a kind of an issue because we think that we know what the present moment is, but we don't know what God is. And so um, oh, I'll bring it back to the, the not sure, right? So not sure is a great way to get into the present moment and to really connect with um, what is truth, right? We might say that like God is truth, the present moment is truth, and um, the truth is in the present moment. We have direct experience of it. We say direct knowledge, and that's, I think, a different kind of knowledge. But so if you say not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, eventually you're going to kind of hit pay dirt. And the pay dirt is, um, is what you can't ignore, right? The, it, the present moment is a kind of truth that you just can't ignore, it's always there. And so if you do the not sure, not sure, you can't get below a certain point of what is truth or what is now. And um, so there, there's a kind of um, a danger there, but that is a kind of a good, um, yeah, God present moment. There's a lot of crossover there. And um, so <laughs> be advised, but um, yeah, it, it does kind of work. Yeah, to thank finish you. off that's on really that, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, yes, thank you, Corey, that's, that's, that's good. And it fits in with what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had said. And he talks about it this way, that in, he says it like this, like, in Buddhism, Dhamma is God. Well, Scott. You've hey. joined us, right? A little bit late. A little late. Just yeah. about to finish up, I think. And yeah, so, I just came to say uh, hi. Dhamma is is the god, uh, but we, we can again look at it from the position of how weighty are we going to use that word God? But the God, because of Christianity, the word God is a very, very heavy, heavy, heavy word. But Dhamma is life. It's just that's all there is. <laughs> There's not much to it. And so um, 
that in fact Christianity, and it's not the religion itself, but it's the people who have brought this mentality to Christianity, is everything is big and ponderous and heavy and God's in heaven and hells and all of that kind of stuff to where uh, within Buddhism, the whole quality is, is that everything is light. Everything is easy. It really is a paradise that when things are heavy, they're not so much of a paradise anymore. I mean, you can you can imagine living at a seaside resort, let us say here at Hadran, to where the bungalows are, are more like salas, which means there's not much walls, that your valuables you put into the locker in the uh, in the building, and you just hang out for, let us say, two, three, four dollars a day, and, you, and the beach is marvelous and beautiful. But if a developer comes in and builds a great big hotel and fences the place in and makes it important, like calling it the name like Fountain Blue or something like that. Now, when people go there, yeah, they still enjoy the beach, but it's heavy. It's not like uh, a deserted beach on an island, which is free and light. Now it's a beach resort. Everything is expensive. The meals are very big and ponderous and weighty and heavy. And everything like that is heavy. So that's one of the ways of understanding that that when we don't understand something and the value that it has, we often add something to it that doesn't belong there. And what is it that we add? We add importance. We add weight to it. We don't leave it just the way that it is. We make it special. We make it wonderful. We make it marvelous. We bring a construction engineer in and building contractors. And we try to make something out of it because it's all important. But when we recognize, no, the Dhamma actually is just light, bright, and easy. There's not much to it. Let's fall in love with that kind of paradise instead of one that's very important, valuable super busy so robert you in the blue shirt you got your hand up um yeah sure so um i'm curious to hear your thoughts on you know i think so with respect to sex so there is that very carnal element to it but there's also like you know a lot of vulnerability and intimacy right and i think one reason people value it as much as they do is like the fact that they are being completely vulnerable with the other person physically and ideally emotionally, you know, in kind of the perfect, you know, sexual encounter, right? You know, ah, and so but we use the word vulnerable when we're in conversations out of the room. When you're in the room, no one uses the word vulnerable. What we use and think about instead is that we are safe with each other sure not vulnerable vulnerable means we're not safe well actually what i meant in terms of vulnerable is you are safe because you're, you're willing to vulnerable, be vulnerable exactly. uh -huh. <laughs> so if you're willing to be vulnerable you must be safe and that's the beauty of it right except that is when you're willing to be vulnerable you're not being vulnerable 
you're being safe instead. Vulnerable is actually right, right. vulnerable is not safe. <laughs> right. And so vulnerable is the concept we use to describe it from outside of the room, as you said uh -huh. earlier. Okay, I, I get what you're saying, what you're getting at with that. But um, but I think that's you know, I think that's kind of another element. And I think also, you know, in relationships, uh, you know, love relationships, there's kind of the idealization aspect. But there's also the deep connection, you know, through all the mysterious ways in which people connect. I think people often connect in very mysterious ways and you can end up, you know, loving someone that you might not have thought, you know, you would be interested in or vice versa, you know. Um, and, and so what are your thoughts on kind of the mysterious ways that people, you know, find themselves attracted to what they, you know, connect, they find themselves connect to what they connect to that they can't even explain? You know, like I, I think would say yeah. the mystery really has to do with the fact that most people are rushing headlong into things and they're not watching what they're doing. They're not watching where they're going. That in fact, <laughs> really, <laughs> if you are clear and open and watch and see what you're going on, you can appreciate the mystery all the more that we will never finish with the mystery, but there's no reason to go into it blindly. And that's what we normally do, that we go, we rush headlong because of our lust and our love and our desire is so strong that we go into it without watching what we're doing. We rush into it. So a better way to do instead of being, uh, uh, trepid or uh, doubtful is to just merely be slow, be mindful, look at what you're doing, walk right in there slowly, watching what's going on, see what you're doing, recognizing that there is some value in this, and then we can, um, let us say, start changing the language just a bit so that we can use the word love in a more wholesome, valuable way. Because the word itself is just all over the place. It's got so many different definitions and meaning. Perhaps it might be even a good idea to stop using that word unless you have a particular use for it. But you can tell your your mate many, many different ways without having to use the word love. That in fact, it might be better if you used other language, like I really appreciate what you did today. Appreciation, that would be a much better word to use, that you enjoy what she's doing. So that's the way that I would look at it, is to find words that we can use that allow us to feel really, really gushy and warm and safe and secure and satisfied in our relationships. Love is optional. What's love got to do with that? If you say you feel safe and secure and warm and gushy and friendly, got to do it yeah what's love got to do with that <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, you know, it's funny. In, in Spanish, they have many different words and uh, tiers of love. And I think it's kind of a better way of talking about it. Mm -hmm. You know. Right. That's one of the problems with English languages is that there are a few words like the word love that have so many different definitions that we don't even know what to use. the word doesn't mean anything anymore. And so it's much better to go after the kind of words that we are looking for that do um, point at what we are talking about. Well, yeah, it's also funny. There are a lot of words like that. You know, I'm a writer, right? And um, and I often like to try and find an interesting a new word if I've used the same word too many times. And there are certain things like, say, excited, you know, that it's better to just find a metaphor instead of a new word. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was looking forward to it like I would like, you know, a little kid looking forward to, you know, the presents under the tree on Christmas Eve. Right. Or something like that. And so, yeah, it is interesting how. Um, you know, there just aren't enough words, you know, I think sometimes. Oh, you just brought something up important that we should end, uh, at least uh, add this to it. How many of you ever seen the movie Rocky Horror Picture Show? It's an old, old movie. And I won't go into the, any details of it. Uh, Great movie. Yeah, Excellent it's a movie. It's a beautiful movie. And in one of the scenes there, um, uh, I forgot what the guy who was in, in, uh, in charge, the one that had the big hair, hairdo and, and he, at one of the songs that he was singing, he used the word anticipation. Now, the whole point about Rocky Horror Picture Show is, is that it has a, a, a very strong, heavy gay element to it. Gay bikers and all of this kind of stuff are, are in, involved with that. And so um, <clears throat> this guy has this, um, I think it's kind of a robot, but he is a, for a gay, an, a middle-aged elderly gay guy, this guy is drop dead gorgeous, okay? And so that's the scene, and he's about to take him upstairs. And the word that he's using is anticipation. Anticipation. Okay. You can hear the anticipation in the word anticipation. <laughs> and so that whole quality of anticipation is the quality that we often operate with this word love. That it's not that I'm getting laid, it's that I'm about to get laid. <laughs> <laughs> That that's where we get, uh, there's a time when you know that you're about to get laid. Sometimes that point happens at supper. Sometimes it happens as you're going into the bedroom. Sometimes it happens when the panties actually come off. But there's a point in time when you know that you're going to get laid. Before it happens. And it's almost like the getting laid then it's not even important anymore. It's the knowledge that I'm going to get laid. It's that anticipation that I'm going to get laid. That's what we're looking for. It's that, that rock solid evidence that I'm going to get it. <laughs> so anticipation is like a feeling 
it's a positive feeling of a present moment that's about to happen. And so it's different than expectation, which is something you don't know is going to happen, but you hope it's going to happen. I think. I'm pretty sure that's how it kind of works and feels. What do you think? Right, exactly so. And so in that regard, we can say that let's work with our practice of Anapanasati, not for the anticipation of being in the presence of God, if we're going to use that language, but it's actually being in the presence of God or being in that state of being in the here now or being in that state of in our sensory uh, input. This is what we want to look at, not that anticipation. So often love and sex and all of that has anticipation built into it as opposed to the actual results of getting it. And so that's another way of looking at it, that love has more to do with anticipation rather than the actual pleasure of, uh, oh, it's known very well in the movies, and that is after the deed is done, he's smoking a cigarette. That's that that cigarette afterwards. That's the indication of the satisfaction of the release. It's done now. I'm in it or I've got it. So this is where we're looking for with that. Uh, our practice of uh, Anapanasati is not the anticipation. Of being in the present moment, it's the result of having been in the present moment and we're in the present moment continuing in the present moment that's the real satisfaction of this is it we're in it now not we're about to have it but often the big jump in our feelings the exuberance the excitement is all through about the anticipation about getting it as opposed to the actual getting it and so that's yeah. one of the qualities of love is the anticipation as opposed to the actual it's all over now we've got it i also use the example of imagine that you're out in the desert and you're really really thirsty and you've got no water and you cross one sand dune after another and as you cross or climb to the top of this sand dune lo and behold down below is an actual oasis with real palm trees, real water, real tents, real camels, real girls in hoochie-goochie or uh, belly dancing costumes. The whole nine yards is a real oasis. And so down you trot. You're running down that sand dune to get down to that oasis. That's the anticipation. You know you're going to get the water. And then you fall on your face and you start drinking. And after you've drank a few um, while, you roll over on your back. Having finished the water, now you're satisfied. While you're running down that hill, you're in a state of anticipation. You haven't gotten the water yet, but you know you're going to get it. As opposed to after you've drank the water, now that you're completely satisfied. And so this is what we're looking for is that state of feeling satisfied, not the feeling of anticipation that we're about to be satisfied. One has excitement, just, the other one has complete relaxation, complete satisfaction in it. 
Right. The thing I want to throw in there real quick is um, and the anticipation comes and goes. The gratitude comes and goes, but the satisfaction is like the resting. So I've been um, exp experiencing kind of like, um, like satisfaction in the present moment, and I'm walking around, and I didn't understand this feeling, but it's it's anticipation. It's like you're, if I'm walking and I'm present, I'm just satisfied. And um, but sometimes I'll need to move, and I will kind of feel an anticipation. Um, and I was mistaking it for a desire, but it's like anticipation is this feeling of the present moment. And um, so I would be satisfied for the main thing. That's the main home base. And I'll anticipate what's going to come next or what I need, usually a drink of water or maybe something to eat. And then I'll feel gratitude. And then I, so the anticipation and the gratitude come and the go, but they are part of this cycle of anticipation, satisfaction, gratitude. But to stay in satisfaction is very important because if we get lost in the anticipation or the gratitude too much, well, I don't know about gratitude, but basically somehow craving and clinging can kind of come into those things. Specifically, mm -hmm. if we crave that which we anticipated. That's exactly right. We haven't gotten our satisfaction. We haven't actually gotten it yet. There's that anticipation. I'm going to get it. And so it's good for us to recognize the distinction between those two. Because one's got that anticipation about to happen, and the other one is the recognition, this is it. We finished, or we got it, or this is good enough. So, Corey, this has been a, a couple of good questions that you've had about Christianity and, and um, love. Uh, because Christianity really uses that word a lot. And it's got so many different meanings to it. So if we go back to the words that we know how to use and expand their meaning, we can bring that word friendship in to bring all the highest quality that we have with the word love without having all of the negative stuff that the word love has in it. So, does anybody have any part, parting words before we finish uh, it? Scott, you've got something, yes. Uh, I love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, thanks, thanks have, everyone. Um, there's been a few of us that have been um, in the Discord uh, daily or so, almost daily, just chatting and hanging out in the video chat. So anyone here or anyone watching the video, they're welcome to join. The, the Discord will be in the video description, and I can link it here again. Yes, thank Robert, you. Robert, Todd, Scott, they've all been there. Yeah. Parker, we really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I appreciate oh, I've got it. a question for Parker. Um, Parker, I think this is the first time I've seen you wear a shirt. What's the what's the reason? <laughs> if any. Um, I mean, the air conditioning is on. It's more comfortable. <laughs> OK, there you go. Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Helps the occasion. 
Okay, Robertson, Scott, and Daniel, and uh, uh, Parker, thank you so much, Todd. Appreciate you guys. Corey is just gone, so we'll we'll see you guys later. Thank you so much. This has been a really good talk. It's been wonderful. Thank you. All right. Have a great night, guys. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.